It's Minnesota Now. I'm Kathy Worzer. The suspected gunman who shot and killed three first responders in Burnsville could not legally own guns. We're going to talk to a journalist covering gun violence about how guns are still still able to be illegally obtained. A local percussionist is beating to the sound of his own drum. How his life as a Buddhist priest informs his music. Plus in our Connect the Dots series, we talk to the director of Minnesota's premier choir, Vocal Essence. Hear the lifelong love story between Philip Brunel and music. We're going to meet the oldest living gold star mother here in Minnesota, who is sharing her memories at 105 years old. And a southern Minnesota wildlife photographer will share how this warm winter is affecting his work. All that comes your way after the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Well, just days before South Carolina holds its Republican presidential primary, the state's former governor, Nikki Haley, says... Some of you, perhaps a few of you in the media, came here today to see if I'm dropping out of the race. (laughs) Well, I'm not. Haley addressing supporters a short time ago at Clemson University in Greenville as she confronts former President Donald Trump's overwhelming lead in the race for the GOP nomination. President Biden is kicking off a re-election campaign swing through California today. NPR's Mara Lyason says the president will attend several re-election fundraisers. California is a reliably blue state, and there won't be much campaigning there by either candidate. But the state is like a giant ATM machine for campaign cash, especially for Democrats. Today, President Biden will head to the Golden State for a few days of fundraisers in San Francisco, Silicon Valley, and Los Angeles. One of the stops is in Los Altos Hills at the home of real estate developer Robert Klein. According to the invitation, tickets to spend some quality time with the president go from $6,600 for a, quote, friend to $100,000 for a host. Mara Lyason, NPR News. The founder of the website WikiLeaks is trying to avoid extradition to the United States. Julian Assange is pressing his case in a British court. NPR's Lauren Frere reports Assange faces espionage charges in this country for publishing classified documents. U.S.-U.K. hands off Assange, protesters chanted outside London's high court. Inside, two judges are hearing two days of arguments over whether Assange is allowed a final appeal, even though the U.K. government has already signed an extradition order. The U.S. wants to put Assange, an Australian citizen, on trial for espionage, for WikiLeaks' 2010 publication of hundreds of thousands of secret documents related to U.S. wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Defense lawyers call Assange a publisher and say this case criminalizes journalism. They say they'll ask the European Court of Human Rights to intervene if UK judges rule against him. Lauren Fryer, NPR News, London. The U.S. Supreme Court will not hear a challenge to a prestigious Northern Virginia high school's admission policy. Some parents argue a policy adopted by Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology discriminates against Asian American applicants. But the Fairfax County School Board says the Magnet School's admissions process is more inclusive. The Supreme Court's decision comes roughly eight months after it effectively ended race-conscious admissions policies at colleges and universities. The Dow Jones Industrial Average is trading lower down 98 points at last check at 38,529. You're listening to NPR News. 
Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Progressive. Progressive Commercial Auto Insurance protects the cars, trucks, and vans that work to keep small businesses moving forward, including protection while running errands and other tasks at ProgressiveCommercial.com. Around Minnesota right now, skies are sunny. Temperatures today will hit the upper 30s to the mid-40s. At noon in Winona, it's 45. It's 29 in Thief River Falls and outside the Royal Bar in Park Rapids. Reportedly the best place for burgers, it's 36. I'm Kathy Worzer with Minnesota News Headlines. Authorities continue to investigate, and people across Minnesota and beyond continue to mourn after Sunday's shooting in Burnsville that left three first responders dead. In an update this morning, the medical examiner confirmed the suspected shooter, Shannon Gooden, died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Gooden kept officers at bay outside a Burnsville home for several hours while he had seven children and his partner inside. They were not heard. Funeral services are being prepared for the fallen first responders. Burnsville Mayor Elizabeth Coutts told me this morning that the city is working with other agencies to cover emergency response staffing. We are here to make sure that we take care of everybody. To our police and fire personnel, we are grateful uh, to all of our neighbors who have come to help us cover shifts while we are grieving. The city is directing any donations to the victims' families to the Law Enforcement Labor Services Benevolent Fund. More information is available on the city of Burnsville's website. The Anoka Hennepin School Board is due to vote Monday on a new teacher's contract that raises educator pay, includes a $750 bonus, and increases in health and pension benefit contributions. According to the Star Tribune, the agreement would eat up nearly all of the $66 million that the state's largest district received from the legislature last year. Union leaders say $64 million is needed to fund the wage and benefit increases. The popular Magnolia's restaurant on St. Paul's east side has been damaged by a fire. The fire last night was burning in the kitchen when firefighters arrived. There was no one in the building at the time. No injuries have been reported. The restaurant opened back in 1984. The building at the intersection of Payne Avenue and East Magnolia Avenue dates back to the 1930s. Our top story, we are continuing to learn more about what led to the fatal shooting of those three first responders in Burnsville over the weekend and the injury of another. Court records show the suspect, Shannon Gooden, had been legally barred from owning guns since he was convicted of felony assault in 2008. In 2020, he asked a judge to reinstate his right to have guns, but that petition was denied. Minnesota ranks in the top third of states according to the strength of its gun laws. That's according to the gun control advocacy group, Every Town for Gun Safety. Now, we still don't know how Gooden would have acquired the gun that police say he used in Sunday's shooting. Jennifer Massia is a senior news writer and founding staff member of The Trace, which is a nonprofit news outlet focused on gun violence in this country. Jennifer, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. I'm sorry it's under these circumstances. Yes, absolutely. You know, it's possible that one part of this investigation could be how Gooden acquired the gun that he's believed to have used Sunday, given this lifetime ban he was under. What are the ways that people who are legally blocked from gun ownership still get them? So even in a state like Minnesota, which does have some pretty strong gun laws, um, it's important to remember every gun in the wrong hand starts off as a legal sale. So gun companies ship guns to wholesalers who then ship them to federally licensed dealers who sell them to the public. 
only federally licensed dealers are required to run background checks. So under, um, and that's under federal law, but individual gun owners are not required to run background checks. So one of the primary ways that um, guns end up in the wrong hands is private sales, right? Because you're only penalized for it if you get caught. So he could have bought a gun from a neighbor at a yard sale via someone he met online, sites like Arms List, classified listing sites. None of them are, are legally required to run background checks. Um, another way is theft. Thousands upon thousands of guns are stolen every year, many of them from unlocked cars. Only 13 states require gun owners to report stolen guns, and Minnesota, unfortunately, is not one of them. And the third way is straw purchasing, when someone walks into a gun store knowing that they're buying a gun for someone who's not allowed to own them. So there is a lot of holes in our laws, and there's a lot of leakage into the black market from those holes. I'm also wondering, you know, some people could also lie about their prohibited status, right? How easy is it to slip through the cracks if the background check process fails to flag them? Um, usually the background check process uh, is pretty good, but there's a lot of things that a background check doesn't check for. Um, and it doesn't check for, well, it doesn't check your social media pages. If you know you have far-right extremist views and you're spouting violence, it's not enough to fail you if you get a background check. If you've been involuntarily committed to a mental health facility, you're banned from guns, but not if you voluntarily committed yourself. So, you know, that's another hole in our laws. And, you know, there there's several instances like that. What are states and the federal government doing to try to close some of these gaps that you mentioned? So, um, you know, in terms of straw purchasing, and this was a big development. In 2022, the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, which was the first federal gun reform law to pass in nearly 30 years, it actually created offenses for gun trafficking and straw purchasing. There, Before that, there were no federal crimes specifically for that. And in the first year, 100 people alone were arrested uh, for those offenses. And in terms of ghost guns, which is another way that somebody can get guns without a background check. Those are privately made firearms um, from 3D printing machines or guns with serial numbers scraped off. Um, you know, an executive order in 2021, President Biden directed the Department of Justice to issue regulations. They did. And they took effect last August. Ghost gun kits, which are parts of a ghost gun that can be assembled um, into a gun without a serial number, are required now to have serial numbers. And in addition, 13 states in D.C. have passed laws that regulate some aspect of this. So what we have is a patchwork. We're trying to get at the problem. But, you know, unless there's comprehensive federal legislation on a lot of this, it's hard to enforce. And you can go to states with weak gun laws and get guns without background checks very easily, as we've seen. So I wonder, you know, in the past, we've done stories here in Minnesota, various local Law enforcement agencies have held gun buyback programs. Um, does that do anything uh, to tamp down on some of the illegal guns out there? Are they are they effective? Gun buyback programs are usually, I mean, I know there are no questions asked. They're usually well-meaning legal gun owners who, you know, do everything by the book and, you know, they they or they're, you know, guns that are no longer operational. We're talking a couple of hundred, maybe a thousand guns at a a decently attended buyback. There are 450 million guns that have been produced in this country uh, since 1899. 
Um, and some estimates from the gun industry say that we have 475 million that are still in circulation. That's a lot of guns. And this is what happens when you try to regulate guns when there are already so many out there. You're going to have a lot of porous areas where guns can slip through. So uh, circling back to some of the things that are, are some of the laws already out there, I mean, European countries have uh, mechanisms, right, where authorities can keep tabs on gun owners. We don't. And I know that's kind of distasteful to a lot of Americans uh, who are in favor of gun rights. Um, I'm wondering, uh, how do we determine whether some of these interventions are working? Well, there is, I know in Europe, you have a system where, and this is foreign to a lot of Americans, you know, we're not used to, you know, you issue a license for a gun and the authorities do keep tabs on, you know, gun owners. They will visit your home in some countries to make sure that you're properly securing your guns. Here, if even in the states that have the strongest laws, like California, and again, Minnesota has very strong laws, you only have to renew a permit to own or carry every few years. It's not you check in every year. The authorities make sure that you're still mentally stable or you're not in crisis or you haven't sold that gun. Um, one way that states can combat some of this is through red flag laws. And Minnesota does have one of those, too, um, where a police officer or a family member can petition a judge to temporarily remove firearms if someone's in crisis. It is not a criminal action. It's a civil procedure. It does not prevent you from owning guns in the future. It's just a temporary fix to get past a crisis. However, it's only as good as its enforcement. Uh, it depends on education of law enforcement and of the public to tell the public what they can do, what tools they have. Right. And in this particular, of course, we should say Minnesota's new red flag law just recently went into effect. It right, wouldn't necessarily right. apply here to this case because this person right. was already barred from legal gun ownership. But I suppose maybe right. his partner could have seen he had guns and possibly alerted authorities. I mean, who knows, right? So, right. It, by the way, are these red flag laws uh, effective in preventing intimate partner homicides? What do, we, what do we know about that? Just curious. They are. You know, a lot of uh, we ha we see domestic murder suicides. Um an average of two a day in this country, and they're almost all gun-related. Those are suicides um, and those murder-suicides. So researchers have found that red flag laws are actually effective at reducing suicide. So it might address, and domestic violence uh, homicide with a gun or assault is an impulsive act. Um, it's very easy to kill someone with a gun. And in a heated moment, People are reaching for guns. And this happens during arguments with friends as well. Things that should be fistfights are now shootouts. And so the red flag law can, when someone is, is in crisis and suicidal, can also be useful at um, preventing some domestic homicides. Because you cover gun violence in this country as a reporter, what will you be looking for when it comes to this Minnesota case here in the next weeks and months to come? I'm very curious how he got this gun. Um, I'm curious if it was a gap in the system, which again, Minnesota has some pretty strong gun laws, so it might not be that. It could be, did he get a gun from out of state? Did a friend give him a gun? What is the policy that could have prevented this or addressed this? And did Minnesota authorities or, you know, did anybody uh, fail? Where was the misstep? And if there wasn't a misstep, where's the hole in the system where better policies can address this. I'm really going to be curious. And it all comes back to how did this person get the guns? And I think a lot of Americans don't realize how weak our gun access is in this country. 
I appreciate your time, Jennifer. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Jennifer Masia is a senior news writer, also founding staff member of the nonprofit news outlet The Trace, which covers gun violence in this country. Send your armies back to war The fact is we made it But we take it too far Shoot your arrows at the sun For all of your treasons And you're still on the run And all of the screen This is our Minnesota Music Minute and this track is called Broken Horse by the Minneapolis band Parachute Empire. The band's no longer together, but you can still find their music at soundcloud.com. Programming supported by Centerpoint Energy, reminding Minnesota homeowners that you can improve natural gas energy efficiency and reduce energy costs in your home with rebates and programs from Centerpoint Energy. Learn more at centerpointenergy.com slash futuremn. This is the song Kalevala Salmon Dance by Ruth McKenzie. Now, you probably hear some drums in the background there. You went in for a treat. This was Mark Anderson, a Twin Cities-based percussionist on those drums. For the past 30 years, he's traveled the world learning and performing musical instruments of many different cultures. And along the way, he became an ordained Zen Buddhist priest. Mark is on the line to talk about the intersections of his Zen Buddhist faith and being a professional percussionist. It's a treat having you here, Mark. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Kathy. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much. Um, mm-hmm. You know, your your professional music career uh, got started uh, many decades ago. Um, you took off when you collaborated with Steve Tibbetts back in 1977. Describe your life back then. <laughs> Let's see if I can remember what my life was like <laughs> back then. Um, well, I know that I was... My son was born in 1978, and my daughter was born in 1972. So I know that I was raising one child and about to have another one. And uh, we had, you know, fairly recently moved to the Twin Cities. I, I uh, started started things off in Austin, Minnesota, and um, so I was just trying to uh, I was just tr- trying to learn how to play. Really, like I was just. I would play with anybody, basically, and fortunately was lucky enough to find somebody like Steve, or he found me, actually, but uh, fortunate enough to hook up with somebody like Steve Tibbetts, which really changed lots of things for me. So you started practicing Zen Buddhism in the early 80s, is that right? What drew you, what drew you to Buddhism initially? Um, well, I originally was drawn to meditation because I was had... We started having trouble in, in our marriage, Roberta and I, and uh, I went and saw a therapist, and he was 
kind of a snarky guy and I didn't like him at all, but um, somehow it sort of <laughs> it, it, it induced an insight. I walked out of his office and thought, well, I'm never going to see him again. And then I, I had this really basically an insight that like there was something about the suffering I was going through that was just fundamentally human and that it actually wasn't likely anybody like him could help me with that and that I was going to need something else. And meditation, I had read a couple of books on meditation already, but I just thought I need to learn how to meditate. And I went home, opened the yellow pages and found the Transcendental Meditation Society, first thing to come up. And I called him and I learned, Roberta and I both actually learned the technique for TM and I did that for a couple of years. And then I just needed more of a community uh, thing with that that seemed available with TM. So, and then I went to Minnesota Zen Center and I walked in the door and the vibe of the thing, the smell of the incense and the Japanese decor and it was like I found my home like I knew right away actually wow and and as a percussionist too I have have friends who are also percussionists uh, mm -hmm. to this end there's uh, some of my friends feel like there's a spirituality with the drum like each drum has its own unique voice and vibration and it kind of connects us to the truth of of the spirit that runs through everything that's according to some of my friends mm -hmm. and I don't know if you've experienced that as a percussionist and then how that dovetails with Buddhism yeah, I, I mean, I think, I basically think all art practices are essentially spiritual practices. Um, and music seems to have a particularly kind of magical feeling to it. And then and, and people do seem to um, relate to drumming, particularly maybe because of its kind of deep visceral thing, but I actually feel that way about all music. And... Um, I mean, I know people will, you know, people have the impression that like Buddhism or Zen or something is about being quiet and then mm -hmm. like, you know, I'm this noisy drummer guy over here and so they wonder what the relationship is. But if in my, you know, in my experience, the way I see it now, like I understood music as basically a spiritual practice pretty early and then now, you know, many decades with both practices, the the trajectory is actually quite similar. So the early early part of learning music, basically you're doing what people think of in the meditation world as mindfulness practices. So you're just trying to learn how to focus long enough to you know be able to play a scale and then be able to play through all the way through a song. And then eventually, so that's what you do, kind of preliminary practices in, in contemplative uh, traditions. And then you need to be able to open the lens up wider in both cases. So in music, you got you have to be able to open the lens enough so that you could hear somebody else and still play your part. And then, so that uh, that project, that trajectory continues until you get to these kind of higher levels in either one of them, whether it's you know meditation or music where what you're really trying to do, and the same thing is true actually in sports, you can see it in, in sports, what you're really trying to do once you've um, you've taken on the muscle memory and you know, you know, you know the tunes and all of that stuff, like you've done your homework, then mm -hmm. what you're really trying to do is get out of your way, out of your own way. You want the self to kind of, the 
constantly chattering mind, like what you really get good at is letting go of that and just being inside the activity, which is 100% what meditation is about. And it's what really great musicians aspire to. How do you help people who are just starting down the road of meditation? Maybe they are interested in Zen Buddhism. Um, how do you help them get out of their own way and, and become a part of the flow? Well, it's for me, it's changed quite a bit in the last couple of years. So my, um, so my, tr- my tradition is Zen Buddhism, Japanese Soto uh, Zen. And the long tradition of the, the path in doing that typically is that you learn kind of basic mindfulness practices. But, you know, those, all of these things are originally kind of come out of monastic traditions. So, um, so I did that for years and then I, that was the way we did it. And I did, you know, dozens of arduous retreats and we've read a thousand books on Buddhism and been around teachers and just, you know, immersed myself in it. And one of the things that I started to think along the way is like, well, almost nobody's going to do this. Like very few people have the time or they don't, just can't get interested enough for one reason or another to go through this. And I just kept thinking there, there must be another way. Like these teachings, they're not Buddhist teachings, really. They're just human teachings because you find versions of the same teachings everywhere, like literally everywhere. All of the religious traditions, all the indigenous cultures, you've, you find similar teachings. So I just kept thinking, how, how could you do this? And actually started a nonprofit to try to figure that out. Like, how could I do this outside the confines of the tradition? And then I bumped into some teachers and there's kind of a growing movement really of people that are teaching meditation, but there it's called direct path teaching or non-dual understanding where you, you can actually teach, you can actually point somebody into having the experience, kind of a non-dual experience, which means, you know, a unified world, like rather Mm -hmm. than the separation between subject-object, like you feel this union, which again, like all traditions are kind of pointing at that thing. That's actually happening to everybody all the time. And you, all you have to do is just point out how people can notice it. And then, then they have to work with it. Like, you know, if you really want to experience that and start living from that, then you got to, you know, you have to figure out how to integrate it. And that takes a long time. But rather than do this kind of long progressive path, I've switched. And now I have a bunch of different ways that I can talk about it and point people directly to it. And that seems to be way more effective. Say, I've got, I wish I had more time with you here. Uh, I need to ask about your performing, uh, career, your, your performing life. Are you going to be anywhere out in the next few weeks if folks want to come see you? Uh, we're, well, we're a little late because I did two really great performances this past oh. weekend. I, um, so I don't, have, I don't have anything coming up other than I've been doing a lot of sound baths, which are kind of a combination of music and, you know, I got gongs and singing bowls and handpans and all kinds of stuff. And, uh, I'm doing a sound bath tomorrow night at McAllis at uh, Warehouser Chapel at McAllister College, and it's open to anybody. All right. Seven, Mark, seven o'clock. Seven o'clock. I got it. Or we'll write that down. It was really a pleasure, Mark. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Kathy. Thank you. Mark Anderson is a Twin Cities-based musician and Zen Buddhist priest. The people you meet, the things you learn here on Minnesota Now. 
We're going to take a break right now for news. Emily Reese is with us. Emily. Hi, Kathy. The U.S. has vetoed an Arab-backed and widely supported U.N. resolution demanding an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war. Today's vote in the 15-member Security Council was 13 to 1, with the United Kingdom abstaining. The vote reflects the wide global support for ending the more than four-month war. It was the third U.S. veto of a Security Council resolution demanding a ceasefire. The U.S. says passing the resolution would interfere with negotiations on on a deal to free hostages abducted in Israel. The White House says it's preparing additional major sanctions on Russia in response to opposition leader Alexei Navalny's death in an Arctic penal colony. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said the new package would be unveiled this Friday. Kirby said the package will be specifically supplemented with additional sanctions regarding Mr. Navalny's death. Saturday marks two years since Russia invaded Ukraine. And President Joe Biden is pushing House Republicans to pass needed aid for Ukraine, and he wants voters to know that nearly two-thirds of the money would actually be going to U.S. factories. Factories like a munitions plant scheduled to open in suburban Dallas. Of the $61 billion in the bill for Ukraine, nearly $40 billion would go to U.S. factories that make missiles, munitions, and other gear. House Speaker Mike Johnson refuses to put the bill up for a vote in the House. Astronomers have discovered what may be the brightest object in the universe. It's a quasar with a black hole at its heart that's so big and growing so fast it swallows the equivalent of a sun a day. The distant quasar shines 500 trillion times brighter than our sun. The black hole is more than 17 billion times bigger than our sun. An Australian-led team reported the findings in the journal Nature Astronomy. The scientists say the object was misclassified as a star decades ago and therefore hiding in plain sight. Kathy? (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Emily. We appreciate it. Temporary series Connect the Dots, where we ask community elders to share their wisdom about what really matters in life and lessons learned about living. So we're going to start off with some music, shall we? This is the Vocal Essence Choir singing Day is Done by Stephen Paulus. Vocal Essence is based at the Plymouth Congregational Church in Minneapolis. Philip Brunel, its founder and artistic director, has led Vocal Essence for 55 years. NPR senior economics contributor Chris Farrell recently met with the 80-year-old Brunel. Welcome back, Chris. Uh, It's great to be here. Where have I been? Philip Brunel turns 80 years old. That just doesn't seem possible, for goodness sakes. Now, for folks who are not familiar with Philip, I love him. He is internationally known, uh, Vocal Essence, internationally famous organization, has flourished under his leadership. But for folks not familiar, how did Vocal Essence get started? You know, Kathy, it's really it's a critical part of this lifelong love story between Brunel and music. And he became a church organist when he was 14 in Bloomington. He moved to Park Avenue Covenant, then Holy Trinity Lutheran. And then when he was 25 years old, he got a call from Plymouth Congregational Church to be its organist and director. Mind you now, he graduated from the University of Minnesota with a degree in music. And he was one of the youngest musicians ever hired by the Minnesota Orchestra. Shortly after he got the job, He said, you know, I want to start a music series that would draw on people in the community who want to sing. 
It started really as a kind of outreach from Plymouth Church, such that today, some people still think that it's a Plymouth Church choir, which it isn't at all. I mean, now we've got 150 singers, and there are two in the group who are Plymouth Church people. So it's evolved. Yes, it has. Oh, my goodness. So I know Philip and the, and the group have traveled the world uh, promoting opera and choral music. I mean, I, I have to say, he's like the Energizer Bunny. He just <laughs> always goes and goes and goes. I love that. You know, he's also commissioned some 350 compositions over the years, and he was the music director of the Minnesota Opera for 17 years. And this is what a former member of Vocal Essence once wrote. In addition to his choral work, he is often simultaneously employed as a church musician, organist, opera conductor, and orchestral musician and conductor. Did I say he was the Energizer Bunny? Yes, I'm right. He's tireless. Um, and I don't know this. Where did Philip Brunel grow up? So his early years were in Austin, Minnesota. His father was a minister, and the family moved to northeast Minneapolis when he was seven. And Brunel says his parents were really supportive, and he carries with him a life lesson from his mother, stay positive and look for opportunities. It was... Um an unusual upbringing in that my father, the minister, had a um, heart attack and died in front of us on Christmas morning when he was 43 and left my mom with five kids who were 15, I was 13, 8, 2, and 11 months. And after the funeral, I remember she pulled us together and just said, well, I don't know how this is going to work. It's going to be an adventure, and God will provide. And I can tell you, there was never a feeling around the house of, oh, poor us. Oh, we've been dealt this bad luck. You know, it was, you know, it's all going to work out. And her positive attitude about life was something that I know I inherited, and I know my siblings inherited, because, you know, you just simply had to go ahead. So I've always just felt very positive about what life gives you. Mm, I wonder how that positive approach to life has affected his career. Well, Kathy, I want to give you a practical example. And this practical example really holds lessons for the rest of us. Call it his, you'll never know if you don't ask approach. So let me set this up with an example from a brief meeting he had with Aaron Copeland, the great American composer. So one summer when Brunel was young, he studied at the Metropolitan Opera and he was asked to follow the score during a rehearsal. And as I'm sitting there with the score, this um, voice out in the audience before the rehearsal started says, who has a score? And I, said, I raised my hand and suddenly uh, Leonard Bernstein sits next to me and then a very quiet voice right behind said, may I also share? And that was, oh, yes, Mr. Copeland. So he sat on the other side of me, and we were there. And so that was the one time that I had met him. So I felt very comfortable calling him up. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> You're kidding me. Sitting between two legends. Okay. So that led Philip Brunel to call up Aaron Copeland? Yeah. So he had just started at Vocal Essence, and of course, he was looking to make a splash. And Brunel fondly remembers his conversation with Copeland. It's one of my mottos, which is, you don't know if you don't ask. Because all people can say is yes or no. And so, and the chance of yes, you got 50% right there. So... I picked up the phone and called this guy named Aaron Copeland. 
and said, Mr. Copeland, I'm starting a music series and I want to focus on choral music that's outside the eight or ten pieces that everybody knows, Handel's Messiah, Brahms Requiem, etc. And I'd love to have a concert of your music for choir with you conducting. And he paused and said, young man, no one has asked me to do that. I would love to do it. I love my choral music. Tell me the date. I'll cancel what I have and be there. And that's how it started. And the concert was packed because people wanted to see Aaron Copeland and hear his choral music. Oh, I can only imagine. You know, I love the uh, the answer is always no one unless you ask motto, you know, okay, you have a 50% chance of a yes, which is good advice to keep in mind. Uh, don't be afraid of rejection. So the trick is how practical he is with his approach. He always finds sure. some kind of connection, Kathy, you know, however, however it's small or thin, to the people he successfully approached, including Copeland, of course, James Earl Jones and Benny Anderson of ABBA. Oh, <laughs> Abba, no less. (laughs) Okay. So what has always stuck with me over these many years of covering Philip Brunel and his music is is just the diversity in his music choices. Well, Kathy, we had this just lovely moment when he talked about the impact that the texts in choral music have on him. You know, sometimes the words come from the Bible, but often it's the words of a poet, a contemporary poet. And he loves composers. And the music gets him excited, and the words move him. And... That led him to say, you know what? Keep music in your life, he says. Music matters. I think music has a depth to it that young people sometimes aren't aware of how much this can affect who they are and how they respond to the world. And I know for many people that music can be something that goes inside of you. And years later, you may go, oh, I remember this wonderful piece of music. I've never forgotten it. And the reason they often can remember it is because they remember the words that went with it. My mother is an example. When she was in her later 80s and she had some dementia, and I went to see her and she was, you know, kind of vague. And then I would say, oh, but do you remember? And I'd name an old hymn. Right away, she starts singing it remembered the words, remembered the melody. And, you know, I just find people have this longing to hold on to something that's special and dear to them. And oftentimes that something that's special and dear is music. I tell you what, Chris, that's so true. I remember how my friends who've had dementia, Alzheimer's, how they can easily sing word for word a song specifically. And and I also see the difference that music makes in, in some of the harder conversations that I've had around Minnesota involving, you know, purposeful living with the nonprofit I founded, the End in Mind Project. Um, getting back to Philip, what else stood out to you? You covered a whole lot of ground here. <laughs> well, you know, it's always struck me whenever around him that his singular trait is his endless curiosity and enthusiasm. I mean, the combination of the two is infectious. And he's always encouraging people to put themselves in a position where they can be surprised whenever he gives a class. For example, he stresses the importance of curiosity, of being willing to learn something new. I always talk about how important it is to be inquisitive and how important it is to keep asking questions and getting to know things. The more you can know is the more you don't know. And 
I know a lot of choral music, but I don't know all the choral music. So I'm always fascinated when some young person says, hey, do you know composer X? And I go, no, how do I find them? But I do find that the sense of curiosity is really an important fact that I've always gone for. Yeah, I know. That's what I love about my job, too. Yeah. I always keep curious and always start, you know, always learn something. Now, uh, you mentioned that Philip Brunel is 80 years old, which I can't believe, and I, I'm sure he's not retiring knowing him. Not even close. He just joined a committee, Kathy, who was formed to come up with ideas on how to celebrate the 250th anniversary of the Constitution in 2026. And I just want to end this conversation. It was, it's on a note that was inspired by Brunel, and it's both for younger people and older people to think about Talk to one another. Learn from another, uh, one another. Reach out if you have a question. I mean, there's nothing new about intergenerational conversations. You know, Socrates and Plato, Merlin and Arthur, Obi-Wan Kenobi and Luke Skywalker. Sorry, I had to put that one in there. Um, the thing is, the learning goes both ways. If a young person calls me up and says, can I ask you some questions? I go, yes, let's do it. And I will tell you, musicians that have gone through life and are continuing their life, are thrilled when a young person comes to them and says, I have some questions for you. It may not, I may not always have the answers they want, but I can certainly advise them, and I just want to encourage them, keep being surprised. Keep being surprised. Oh, I love that. Isn't that a great motto? Oh, yeah. Chris, I've really enjoyed this. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Kathy. Chris Farrell's NPR Senior Economics Contributor. I want you to meet someone. In 1919, World War I had just ended. Woodrow Wilson was the U.S. president. Women couldn't yet vote. That was the year Central Minnesota resident Stella Husso was born. Stella recently shared her memories with NPR's Kirstie Marone as the oldest living Gold Star mother. On Stella Husso's 105th birthday last month, the community of Big Lake threw a party, calling it a celebration. Sherburne County declared January 16th Stella Husso Day. The proclamation called her a relentless advocate for our nation's veterans and their families. Huso herself isn't sure what all the fuss is about. It's been a lot of attention to it, but uh, I am getting used to it. Huso has another honorary title, one that no one wants. She's believed to be the oldest living Gold Star mother. The distinction is given to women whose son or daughter died while in active duty in the U.S. Armed Forces. Are you Stella? Yes. I visited Huso in her apartment in Buffalo, where she lives independently. She perches on the edge of a rolling walker and grips the handles with wizened hands as she scoots along the hallway. Huso grew up in North Dakota, along with five siblings, on land her grandfather homesteaded. It was Dakota territory. It wasn't even a state yet. So that's where I was born and raised, was on that same land. Will you take that? Yes. She asks me to retrieve a box from the closet and pulls out a folded paper. Grandpa's folded papers. There they are. Oh, wow. The yellowing document dates back to 1887. It's signed by President Grover Cleveland. Right here. Huso's memories include the Great Depression, which she calls a terrible time. We survived because we lived on a farm, of course. So we had chickens 
and we had milk for cows, so we were better than a lot of the people that lived in town. It was a drought that really hurt us. There was no rain, and the grasshoppers came in and ate most of the stuff. We just survived through it. Many farm kids couldn't attend high school because there were no buses. Huso lived with families in town so she could go to school. She graduated in 1937, just two years before Hitler invaded Poland, launching World War II. And I remember my dad saying, well, it won't be long before we'll be in it too, because he knew of what happened with the First World War. By the time the U.S. joined the war, Husa was married and had her first child. Her husband, Orden, worked for several creameries, and they moved often. He eventually got a job as an electrical engineer at a plant in St. Michael, and they settled in Big Lake. Huso stayed busy raising five kids, volunteering at church, and with the local PTA. When their son Wade was a sophomore in college, he enlisted in the Army. After training, he was sent to Vietnam during the height of the war. Huso recalls a letter in which he wrote, I don't know why we are here, but I hope it's for a good cause. It uh, affected me deeply that uh, he had gone there with uh, that feeling. Three months after he arrived in Vietnam, Wade was killed by an artillery round. He was 20 years old. Huso shows me the telegram. And that's how you found out that he had died? Yes, August uh, 1969. Huso recalls other soldiers returning home echoing Wade's questions. She thinks one reason is they didn't always receive a hero's welcome. Because they didn't win the war. And it was none of their doings that to win. It was the leaders that sent them there, you know. Huso became an active member of the American Legion Auxiliary in Big Lake, helping support other veterans and their families. Her life hasn't always been easy, but it's been full. She now has seven grandchildren, 15 great-grandchildren, and four great-great-grandchildren. She loves traveling and has visited 48 U.S. states, plus Italy, Greece, Turkey, and Croatia. Huso attributes her health and longevity to taking vitamins and staying optimistic. Her sharp memory, she says, comes from good genes. The things that I want to remember, I'm glad I do remember. In 105 years, there's a lot of memories. Kirstie Marone, NPR News, Buffalo. This is Minnesota Now on NPR News. I'm Kathy Worzer. Albert Lee, Minnesota native Jacob Schlichter, spent the beginning of the new year bundled up along I-35 photographing swans. The photographer and business owner was awarded the Southeastern Minnesota Arts Council grant in November of last year and used the money to create a public photography exhibit showcasing southern Minnesota wildlife. Jacob is on the line right now to talk about his creative process and the challenge of photographing wildlife in such a warm and dry and weirdly strange winter this year. Hey, welcome, Jacob. How are you? Hey, Kathy. I'm doing all right. How are you? Good. Thank you. Congratulations. This seems like it was a pretty competitive grant process. Yeah, it's definitely not an easy endeavor to go through. I'll tell you that. <laughs> so tell me, why did you choose Southern Minnesota Wildlife for your project? Um, I am a huge nature-loving hippie, if I'm being honest. <laughs> I grew up reading National Geographic, watching Discovery Channel, Animal Planet, RIP Steve Irwin, you know how it is. So growing up with that, um, and then with my love for photography being developed during high school, 
it kind of naturally segued from taking photos of people doing tricks on their skateboard at the skate park over in Austin to photographing birds as they're diving for a fish over at Elbert Lee Lake. So, so I'm yeah. betting, oh, wow. I'm betting then that you might be a fan of the great nature photographer, Jim Brandenburg, uh, a native of Western Minnesota. Um, Jim has told me that photographing nature is a very intimate thing for him to do. And for years, taking photos was like keeping a, um, a special journal of the natural world around him. How do you view your interactions with nature as a photographer? Oh, yeah, very much the same. It's a very personal endeavor for me. Um, you know, I'm repeatedly going to the same spots every week and kind of building up a reputation with the wildlife as, you know, something that they could look at and view as uh, non-threatening. And that allows me to really be able to get some of the shots I do and get right in the face of some of the wildlife. And I mean, that is, it's truly magical. I mean, in my generation, we call it being like a Disney princess. You know, you're attracting all the birds and all the wildlife. But to actually live that and be face-to-face with a green heron as it's hunting for frogs in a pond and be able to actually have that up-close interaction is just breathtaking. And honestly, words don't even describe it to me. Wow. I love that phrase, building a, a, a relationship, you know, uh, in, their, in, in the animal's and the birds are clearly not afraid of you, at least you're, you're part of the surroundings, right? Um, I'm curious then, as you come face to face with some of the animals, uh, who, who really has uh, struck you? Uh, what was the biggest surprise? Oh, there's a few instances that come to mind. Uh, once I had this yellow warbler um, just kind of chase me around for 15 minutes and just buzz around my head. And I'm just like, bro, can you just chill out? You look so pretty. And eventually he sat there on a branch and just stared at me for like maybe 30 seconds. And in that time, I had to adjust all my camera settings to get like this shot of it sitting there. And it was that was really remarkable. Um, Another time I was photographing this lone baby deer out in a field near Albert Lee. And the deer itself was probably so young it didn't know any better. The deer ended up walking right up to me. And it just kind of stayed by my side for about an hour as I walked around the the nature park and was looking for its family to kind of guide it back home. Eventually, you know, rest assured, the family did come up and find the deer again. But the mother just looked at me like, what the heck? (laughs) What are you doing? And in that moment, the baby deer just ran right to its mom. And you could tell the mother was probably scolding it, you know, but (laughs) just stuff like that. It's really just quite quite the experience. And I really hope to bring that experience to everyone else through my photos. So hopefully I'm doing a good job at that. Well, you you were working during a really weird winter, you know, with the warm weather. I'm sure it was fine working in it. You know, you didn't have to slog through a bunch of snow and it was really, it was not very cold. But did that affect your process at all and what you saw? Um, well, Kathy, I gotta say, I bought a long track snowmobile last year with the intent of being able to strap my camera gear to the back of it. And uh, if you, to all the listeners, you know, look out a window, I I don't even know if we could call what we had this year a winter. So yeah, so uh, to bring it full circle to those swans you mentioned at the beginning, those very swans, their pond dried up actually, and I had to chase them down over the span of a month and find out where they're relocated. And it rewarded me with this amazing like family photo of the swans with their new babies, uh, uh, framed by a bunch of brush and trees. It was really cool. But I felt really bad because a lot of the wildlife is 
truly suffering from this drought. Um, places that would normally be a hotbed for feeding and just nesting are completely dry and without any sort of life. And you can see hundreds of birds sitting there kind of just like, well, this is our reality now. We got to deal with it. And it's just, it's created a huge mess if I am being blunt about it. Um, I literally went into this project with the intent of getting a bunch of snowy, beautiful shots of the wildlife, you know, interacting with the snow and hunting throughout the winter. I had all these uh, locations scouted out months ahead of time and was getting permission from various landowners to be on their property. So yeah, none of that really planned out the way I wanted it to, unfortunately. Wow. But you still got some really great shots though. Oh yes. I have a lot of really cool shots and you know, the lack of snow does aid in some other endeavors, like being able to see more clearly and having different experiences with some of the wildlife that might not be hibernating in a normal way. So it's been kind of cool seeing some of the groundhogs, for instance, out and about still and being able to interact with them because of how shy they are. You know, you need a lot of interactions before you really get that one good shot with them. So I know you've been sharing your photos on social media. What's the response been like? Pretty positive. Everyone's really loving what they see and has been extremely encouraging. And then some of my other friends that are wildlife photographers have been trading tips with me and it's been a really productive time overall. And your photos are on display at the Albert Lee Arts Center, right? Yes, the Albert Lee Arts Center and the Austin Artwork Center. Okay. Now, uh, is this a first for you? Have you had your, your work displayed in this manner before? Um, a few years back, I did a smaller gallery on the George Floyd protest over at the Austin Artwork Center. So it's not the first time, but it's the first time I'm doing a wildlife exhibit. Okay. So it must be really fun to see these photos up in a, in a wider space, you know, for folks to interact with. Um, before you go, we, we've got a, a, a bunch of listeners who are interested in what you're doing. What's your advice for folks to get started in taking some cool shots with wildlife photography? To get started, honestly, the number one advice I can give to a photographer, and I guess this would go for any creator in general, is to cr try to create something every day. You know, everyone's got a phone nowadays that has a pretty good camera in it. If you can use the zoom on that, you could probably get some decent photos. Otherwise, you know, save up a little bit of money and buy like a affordable DSLR and a decent lens. And that'll take you pretty far as long as you're actually out there shooting every day. All right. Good advice. Jacob, it's been a real treat talking to you. Thank you and congratulations. Thank you so much for having me. Jacob Schlichter is a photographer and business owner based in Albert Lee, and the exhibit will be displayed through March 22nd. You also should find him online. His last name is spelled S-C-H-L-I-C-H-T-E-R, Jacob, first name. He's terrific. Thanks for joining us today on Minnesota Now.